0: So we are now picking up in verse 6. But before we hear God's word, let us call upon our God and ask for his help. Father, we thank you that you do continue to speak directly to us through your holy, inerrant, and inspired word. We thank you that this word is no less to us than it was to the original audience, and we pray that we would continue to glean your truth from it. So open the eyes of our hearts to behold wondrous things out of your word. Give us grace to understand, to believe, to love, and to obey your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges Chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For eighteen years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? From the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Here in the middle of Judges, we receive the fullest treatment of Israel's idolatrous rejection of their covenant God. Now, much of the description is familiar. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We have heard that many times before. And yet, the more thorough treatment of apostasy here reveals that Israel is not stuck in a repetitive cycle. They are descending deeper along a downward spiral of sin, for they not only serve the chief Canaanite gods, the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but we see that they are seeking out any gods they can find to serve, even those outside of Canaan, the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, the Ammonites, and the Philistines. Seven sets of gods are listed to signify the completeness of their idolatry at this point. The Lord gave them this land of Canaan to destroy the Canaanites, to purge evil from the land and serve him. And yet they have instead become spiritual Canaanites. They have forsaken the Lord and they have refused to serve him. And so we are reminded and warned that sin is never content. Its appetite is never satisfied. If left unchecked, sin will endlessly seek new depths of depravity. The more you sin, the more you are enslaved. The more you are enslaved, the more you sin. So never delude yourself into thinking that. You are in control of your sin. Never think, well, it's just a little sin. It would never go a long way. When it comes to sin, you are never the one with power and control. It will not remain on the leash of your will, doing only as you please. Like a rabid dog, it will drag your will wherever it pleases. So we see this with Israel. And the next three verses are likewise familiar to us, yet intensified. God is angry, as he has been before, and he sells the Israelites to the masters they have craved, as he has done before. And as always, they find these masters to be cruel. Now, two enemies are going to dominate the last two cycles of Judges, The Philistines and the Ammonites. The Philistines are going to be enemy number one when the Lord raises up Samson. We'll encounter that in chapters 13 through 16. But the Ammonites are going to be the chief oppressors in the days of Jephthah, who's the next major judge that we will encounter. And so this section of chapter 10 is not only introducing the Jephthah cycle, it's also in many ways the introduction for the Samson cycle. But the intensified oppression is indicated by the fact that the Ammonites crushed the people of Israel. You only find that word one other place in the Old Testament, and it is describing how the Lord deals with the Egyptians. So because Israel is treating God as their enemy, they are learning what it is like to be God's enemy, The intensification is also indicated by the length of the oppression. Remember with Gideon, they had only been oppressed by the Midianites for seven years. Now they're going to be oppressed for 18 years. And finally, the intensification is indicated by the degree of distress. You notice it says that Israel was severely distressed in verse 9 because sin and misery are fraternal twins. And the birth of the second always quickly follows on the heels of the first. So the deeper you swim in sin, the darker your days will become. When you leave the sun's light, you also leave its warmth. Then in verses 10 through 16, we get more familiar notes. And the people of Israel cried out, to the Lord, as they've done many times. But here we actually get to hear the content of their cry, which may suggest this cry was somewhat different than what they called out to the Lord with earlier. For your notice in this cry, they actually acknowledge their sin. They confess that they have forsaken are God and have served the Baals, in verse 10. And God now directly responds to this cry. But he does not respond as he has in the past, sending an angel or messenger, sending a prophet. He now speaks to them directly. And his answer is a very harsh answer. Even harsher than when God spoke to the Israelites through a prophet in the days of Gideon. And it concludes with the distressing declaration that he is no longer going to save them from their distress. But the people respond again, acknowledging their sin, pleading for mercy, putting away their idols, and it actually says they serve the Lord. This introduction then ends with the unusual phrase that God became impatient, not with Israel, but with Israel's misery. Now, the the verses may appear somewhat straightforward, yet if you took time to read the many commentaries that have been written on the book of Judges, you will find that there is significant disagreement and debate about what is actually taking place here. And the primary debate revolves around the question, is Israel actually sincerely repenting now? Or is this the exact same song and dance we've encountered before? And I admit, I have gone back and forth on this question, and I'm not entirely sure whether they are truly repentant or not. However, in wrestling with that question, I was reminded this week that true repentance often is difficult to assess, not only in whether others are truly repentant, but even knowing, are are we walking in true repentance? And the question of Our repentance is far more important than being able to definitively answer whether or not Israel was repentant here in chapter 10. Now, I'll give you my assessment of their repentance, acknowledging I could be wrong. But as I do, I want you to assess your own heart. For we all are here with various sins that we're struggling with. Maybe others know what those sins are, maybe they don't. And it's important from time to time to look at our own hearts and tell as as best we can, am I walking in repentance or am I walking in unrepentance? So to help each of us assess our own repentance, I'm going to give you four questions that you ought to ask yourself in light of this text. And the first question is a question we've asked before as working through Judges, and that question is, what is distressing me most? Is it my sin, or is it my suffering because of my sin? What distresses me most, my sin or my suffering? As I said, that question has come up before because I have argued repeatedly that Israel during these days is more concerned with God relieving their suffering than they are concerned with God forgiving their sin. They have been short-sighted. They have cared far more about temporary deliverance as opposed to eternal salvation. They have not understood that their greatest enemy has not been the Canaanites or the Amalekites or the Midianites or the Ammonites. Their greatest enemy has been their own idolatry. It's them. It's their internal sin, not their external oppressors. They have not longed for reconciliation with God. They've just wanted relief from pain. And so, as they have cried out to the Lord, yes, at times they have been filled with regret, but they have not been filled with repentance. For repentance hates the sin piece of the equation. Regret only hates the misery piece. Repentance is distressed by the distance that sin has created from God. Regret is only distressed by the discomfort resulting from sin's consequences. So repentance cries out, I have lost God and I want Him back. Regret cries out, I have lost what I want from God and I want it back. Repentance says, I am sorry that I have sinned against and offended God. Regret says, I am sorry that I am suffering because God is mad at me. So imagine if a a husband is unfaithful to his wife. If he is repentant, then what he really cares about is that he has hurt and betrayed the one he loves. He wants his wife back. If he's only regretful, what he cares most about is that maybe she and others no longer view him the way that they used to view him. He's lost his good reputation. She's not affectionate to him and treating him the way that he wants to be treated. And he wants those things back. So what is your greatest sorrow as you continue to fight your sin? Is it that you have sinned against God, or is it something else? Are you fighting and confessing sin in a way that honors God, or is the way that you fight and confess sin more of an attempt to manipulate God to restore the comforts and pleasures that you want? If we're all honest, there are times that we are really just trying to manipulate God. We say certain things. We maybe change our behavior a little bit so that God and others will think better of us and maybe give us the things we want back. And so it's really, a, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. You wait for the dust to settle and then you go right back to what you were doing before. Now God appears, at least initially, to question the sincerity of Israel's confession. As he did when he sent the prophet in the days of Gideon, he answers them by first reminding the Israelites of his past salvation. But this time he doesn't merely recall how he had saved them from the Egyptians. He lists how he has continually saved them from one people after another, which we've been reading about in this book. And he actually lists Seven peoples that he has saved them from, which matches the sevenfold list of idolatry earlier. So God is essentially coming to Israel and saying, I hear your cry, but we have been here before. You go after other gods. You are oppressed by other peoples. You ask me for help. I deliver you. But as soon as I relieve your suffering, you charge right back headlong into your idolatry, which is proving what you want is not me as your God, but simply what you think I can give you. So if all you want is earthly protection and provision, then you can go get it from the other gods you seem to prefer. I'm not going to help you anymore how Israel has responded to God's past deliverance has demonstrated that what is distressing them the most is their suffering, not their sin. And we need to ask ourselves that same question. Now, you may not be sure exactly what is distressing you most. And so then it's helpful to ask this next question, which is, how am I responding to God's mercy? see, I don't think your repentance is going to be the clearest when you are in the midst of the storm. When people are in a storm, they are far more likely to turn to God for help. In other words, the sincerity of your repentance will not be clear when you're just initially convicted of sin and facing consequences. Anyone may temporarily cry out to God when they're in pain. But what about when he does for you as you have asked? What about when he restores pleasures? What about when he mercifully rescues you from the trials and tribulations that have been brought on by your sin? When God gives you call, will you still turn to him? That is God's accusation against Israel. He says, You only want me when things are bad. What about when things are good. Their cries have been attempts to manipulate God to get what they want. And God will not tolerate being manipulated and used. So what will you do when the pain of conviction or consequences subsides? Will you still keep fighting your sin then? Or will you be the dog that returns to its vomit? In some ways, repentance only becomes clear over time. Now that doesn't mean that we just are always skeptical with others and ourselves and never give anybody the benefit of the doubt. It simply means we need to be cautious and realistic and understand that repentance is a long-term thing, not a short-term reality. So you, you think of those who battle various addictions. It's good when they have a week of success, but you wouldn't tell an alcoholic who hasn't had a drink for a week, hey, it's good. Everything's fine now. No, you remain watchful. And repentance remains watchful. It doesn't become complacent or idle. Because again, repentance desires God, not merely comforts from God. It keeps pursuing God, therefore, even when the Lord graciously and mercifully relieves some of your suffering. For grace is ultimately meant to give you God, not just earthly goods. So again, I ask you, how are you responding to God's mercy when he gives it to you? Is that giving you strength to pursue holiness or is it giving you an excuse to just keep pursuing sin? Do you only call upon the Lord in the storm? When life is hard, is that the only time you're praying? And then when things are a little bit easier, you realize, I I don't talk to God at all. (laughs) How am I responding to God's mercy? But there's another question you need to ask, because God doesn't always just respond with mercy. Sometimes, like he does here with the Israelites, he responds with hard answers we don't want to hear. And so the third question you need to ask yourself is, how am I responding to God's hard answers? For repentance is demonstrated over time in how we respond to his merciful deliverance from suffering when we cry out to him. But it's also demonstrated with how we respond when his answer is not actually what we want to hear. Now, I do believe it is good that Israel finally acknowledges their sin and idolatry in verse 10. While other commentators are skeptical of Israel from beginning to end, and they suggest, well, this is how they've cried out every single time, I believe that new details are usually pretty important in biblical narratives. So I think Israel is taking an important step in the right direction, but they're not yet where they need to be. And this is why I believe God gives them the hard answer that he does. Yes, his answer is an appropriate rebuke and accurately calls out Israel's hypocrisy. But it's also a test and a mercy. For we remember that throughout this period of Israel's history, we we read back in chapter 2 that God was testing Israel whether they would take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So, in essence, his answer in chapter 10 confronts them with this challenge. What are you going to do if I say, no, I'm not going to relieve your suffering like you want me to? He is helping them see that they have only cared about suffering and not really about sin. And that what they really need to be dealing with is their sin. What better way to test whether they are finally more distressed by their sin than their suffering by telling them, I'm not actually going to do anything about your suffering right now. If someone only wants something from you, then as soon as you either give it to them or withhold it, they're going to leave you because they just wanted something from you. You know somebody actually wants you When you're not giving them anything else. In this way, therefore, God is actually bringing Israel to the repentance that they cannot naturally seem to find. And the same is true for us. When we finally come to faith and find repentance in our hearts, it's not because we naturally got there on our own. It's because God mercifully brought us where we need to be. And sometimes he works to draw us closer to him by first withdrawing from us. I think of when Jesus encounters the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15. That story really Bothered me when I was younger. But in this story, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and she comes crying out to him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So she wants Jesus to relieve the suffering of her daughter whom she loves. And you would initially, having read through the Gospels and seen who Jesus is, expect. The next sentence to say, and Jesus had pity and compassion on her, and he said, go, your daughter is healed. But what you actually read is that Jesus did not say a word to her. He didn't even acknowledge her presence. And you may think, wow, Jesus, that is really cold. And maybe sometimes that's how you think God is answering you. You're crying out to him. You're asking for help and you just get nothing, no acknowledgement. But it gets even worse because when his disciples ask him, "Will will you please just help this woman so she will stop bothering us? Jesus still doesn't talk to the woman, but he tells his disciples, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, she's not an Israelite, not helping her. But this leads the woman to now kneel down before him. And she simply says, Lord, help me. And yet again, Jesus gives a hard answer. He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Dog was a derogatory way to refer to a non-Israelite. And yet this woman responds, yes, Lord, Yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus finally answers her and says, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Now, what's going on in that story? Is Jesus just being a racist jerk? No. Through his hard answers, he is actually bringing the woman to a greater posture of faith and humility than she had when she first approached him. He is drawing her into a greater salvation than she initially desired. I think when she first comes to him, she's just concerned about her daughter. But by the end, she is acknowledging that Jesus is the Lord of her life. And I think this is what's happening in Judges chapter 10. God righteously rebukes Israel, but he is also mercifully drawing Israel into greater faith and repentance than they previously had, which is necessary to draw them back to himself. And you see this in verse 15. For they answer God's hard answer, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And again, scholars disagree on what Israel is actually saying. Many think they're just saying, okay, Lord, we don't actually care about long-term consequences. You do what you got to do, but please just take away the pain now. I don't actually think that's what's happening here. I, I think to say it another way that the Israelites are saying, Lord, you're exactly right. We have been hypocritical, and we have forsaken you over and over again. We have done evil in your eyes, and you ought to do what is right in your own eyes. And we will submit to whatever judgment that is. Yet all we can do is just humbly ask that you would give us mercy. In other words, they're acknowledging God's just judgment, and yet just still pleading for mercy. The change is that they're, I think, acknowledging, we're going to follow you whether you answer our plea for mercy or not. I believe verse 16 makes that clear, but before we get to verse 16, let me simply ask you, how are you responding to God's hard answers, which he is giving you at times? Will you try to, To find what you want from somewhere else? Okay, God, you're not going to give it to me. I'm going to go find my comfort, my pleasure some other way. Will you leave him when he fails to give or takes away what you want most? If God's answer to you as you cried out for relief from suffering was simply, I will save you from your sin and you will be with me for all eternity but I'm not going to take away this earthly suffering. Would you say, okay, Lord, following you, whether you take it away or not, saving me from my sin to be with you for all eternity, that's more than I could ever ask for. How you respond to God's mercy and how you respond to to God's hard answers both indicate whether your concern is more about your sin or your suffering, whether what you want is God or just his good gifts. God's hard answers, his moments of apparent withdrawal are meant to test you, to help you better see what your spiritual state really is. And it is meant to then draw you into greater faith and repentance, which will actually draw you closer to him. Sometimes I think of when our, our little kids are first learning to to crawl or or to walk, and one of the ways you kind of help them to get going because they don't really want to get going is you take something that they want and you hold it in front of them and you just kind of keep it a little bit out of their grip and they start moving towards you. Sometimes that's what God does to help us learn how to walk toward him and with him. Sometimes it is God moving away from you that finally leads you to move toward him. And that's what I believe is happening in chapter 10, because God doesn't actually answer them again. He doesn't say after verse 15, okay, I will save you now. The last thing that they have heard from God is, I will not save you anymore. But what do they do? It says that they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. In other words, through their actions, they responded, whether you answer us or not, we now want you. We're not going back to those other gods. We're going to serve you. Now, again, I understand the skepticism of the many scholars out there. How can you not read the book of Judges and be skeptical of Israel at every step? But it seems to me that there is a clear contrast between what you read in verse 16 and what you had read previously in verse 6. And it is to communicate that a significant change has taken place. Now, this isn't going to be a permanent change for the people of Israel. We're going to get to chapter 13, and guess what? They do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. But I think it's genuine here. They had forsaken the Lord, and it says they didn't serve him. Now it says what they're doing is forsaking the other gods, and they're serving the Lord. And so I think to be skeptical of their sincerity in verse 16— needs to make you be skeptical of their sincerity in verse 6 and say, well, they weren't really forsaking the Lord and following other gods. But this then brings me to my last question. We've asked, what distresses me most, my sin or my suffering? How am I responding to God's mercy? How am I responding to God's hard answers? The fourth and final question is, what am I doing with my idols? For sometimes we temporarily change our external behavior to look repentant, but we're really hiding our idols in our hearts until the coast is clear. Like when Rachel feigned innocence and stealing her father's idols and says, well, I I don't have them as she's sitting on top of them. But in true repentance, the external and the internal match. It goes both ways. In other words, you can't say your heart has really changed if your behavior is not changing at all. Now, the change may be slow and not all at once, but it will be there to some degree. Repentance is not limited to words, but it touches actions. It would not have been enough for Israel to say, we serve the Lord while all of their idols remained in their homes and in their temples. But neither would it have been enough to just throw away their idols and not truly serve the Lord. So what are you doing with your idols? Are you just concealing them until the coast is clear? Or are you working by God's grace to truly cast them away each day? Are you not only washing your hands, but washing your heart? John Calvin said our hearts are idle factories. Sin and idolatry are always a heart issue. And so we need to be laboring to fight against our sinful desires as we are, as much as we are fighting against our sinful actions. But repentance still includes actions. To walk in repentance is to walk in increased obedience. It's to hate sin more, and so over time you sin less. It's to love God more, to obey God more. It's a private matter of the heart, but it is publicly displayed in a changed life. Again, acknowledging that this change will be progressive over time and not perfect all at once or ever in this life. Let me close, being clear that although repentance is a necessary condition for salvation, repentance is not the cause of your salvation. By condition, I mean that faith and repentance are necessary. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel and he says, repent and believe the gospel. You must do that. But when I say repentance is not the cause of your salvation, I mean that repentance is not the work that makes God save you. And why is that important to understand? It's important because, as I just said, your repentance is never going to be perfect in this life. And you may always be questioning, am am I 100% sincere? And you may not ever be 100% sincere. You will always be battling the tendency to try to manipulate God. You will always battle to hate sin more than you're suffering. Furthermore, there may be sins that you're not even aware of and which you're not consciously repenting of, even as you're seeking to generally confess and repent of what you see. I think of David's prayer in Psalm 139, where he's asking the Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's admitting, "I, I don't think I see all the sin that's there, Lord. So if you think that your repentance is not merely a condition, but is the actual cause of salvation, then you are going to live in perpetual fear and uncertainty. You're never going to know if you're saved or not. For who could ever be confident that they are repenting perfectly of every sin they have ever committed? And this is why I think it's helpful to see that God's salvation, which will eventually follow, he is going to save them again is not said to be the direct result of their repentance. So often we we think that our salvation depends upon God's patience, which it does. But here in Judges 10, we learn that Israel's salvation actually depended on God's impatience. Yes, they put away their foreign gods and served the Lord, which was necessary. But it says that God is going to deliver them because he became impatient over the misery of Israel. In other words, God knew Israel's never going to deserve my grace. He knew they're, they're never going to get their act together. They're going to keep charging into the same sins. He knows his covenant promises can never depend on their covenant faithfulness, which is why when God made the covenant with Abraham and the Animals were cut in two to signify the curse of covenant unfaithfulness. It was God who passed through the carcasses, not Abraham, because God was saying, I, I know the covenant's going to be broken, and I'm the one who's going to bear the curse for it. So God delivered Israel not because they finally got it right. He delivered Israel because he still loved them and he was impatient with their self-inflicted wounds and misery. Again, I think of watching my kids when they learned how to Walk and you're watching them try to take those first steps, and they keep stumbling and falling over. They're trying to get across the room, they're crying with frustration, they hurt themselves when they fall. And so, there's just times where you get impatient and you walk over and you pick them up and you move them to the next location. So, as you assess your own heart, which is important, you should be asking yourself these questions. Do so. Remembering that your salvation does not first depend on what you discover in your heart. Your salvation depends on what you discover in God's heart. And what God's children find in his heart is an impatient love. He says, I know you can't do it. That's why I've done it for you. And he did it for us by sending his son to take on our flesh to obey where we disobeyed, to suffer what we have suffered, to pay the penalty for our sin, and to defeat the enemies that we could not defeat. You see, you were not saved by your repentance, although you must repent and believe the gospel. You were saved by the impatient grace and love of God, who loves his children more than they will ever love him, who is faithful even though they are repeatedly unfaithful, and who does everything necessary to finally bring them to himself. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask, as David asked, that you would search us, that you would know us, that you would try our hearts, and you would show us if we are walking in repentance as we fight against sin, or if we're we're just walking in unrepentant sin. Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? But Lord, I pray then that you would show us your grace in Jesus Christ. You would show us that the answer is not ultimately, okay, I just need to do better at repenting. But the answer is, you have been impatient to save us. So help us to trust what is in your heart more than than we trust what is in our hearts. Continue to conform our hearts to Christ, but as you do, as the progress is slow and sometimes painful, remind us of your covenant faithfulness. Remind us of your sure promises that are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And may we, therefore, continue to fight sin and walk in imperfect repentance, trusting in our perfect Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.